today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, Mayor Fred Eisenberger met with Premier Doug Ford. They've been trying to get this meeting together for a while now. They finally did. There were a bunch of topics on the agenda. One of the topics was, of course, LRT. Now, meanwhile, there's a report in The Spectator today that Metrolinx has stopped buying LRT land. And the reason it's doing that is, uh, when I say LRT land, I mean buildings and land along the LRT route that it was going to use to be able to put that in. Uh, This is part of a discretionary spending freeze ordered by the new provincial government while it looks at all the finances that it has inherited in the province of Ontario. But again, this has led to all kinds of concerns and conclusions and everything else by people on all sides of the aisle and all sides of the LRT debate. Let me bring in the MPP for Flamborough-Glanbrook, Donna Skelly, who joins me now. Donna, thanks for doing this today. Good morning. I'm guessing that when you left Hamilton City Council, you gleefully rubbed your hands together and said, finally, I'm not going to have to talk about LRT anymore. <laughs> it, it doesn't, I don't think a day goes by that I don't talk about LRT. It is, it is the number one issue right now in the city. And I can tell you, it will be the issue in the upcoming October 22nd municipal election. Um, you were stating that uh, a lot of people have been wondering whether or not there is a correlation between um, the ceasing to acquire property along the LRT route that Metrolinx has confirmed and whether that is specific to the LRT project. What you said was actually accurate. It isn't. It's part of a province-wide uh, initiative. We are now, as a, as a government, it's something that we promised to do. We are undertaking a line-by-line uh, audit of every expenditure in the province, and there has been a freeze province-wide on discretionary spending. This is just part of that overall uh, province-wide directive, and it has nothing, it's not specific to LRT. I have confirmed once again, I think I have to do this almost daily, um, that <laughs> yes, true. the money still remains in place, and yes, it will be up to the next council to determine how they want to spend that money, and LRT I know, or other transit initiatives. And I know that you've repeated this three or four hundred times already, and <laughs> people are going to believe you or they're not going to believe you. But do you? does any part of you understand why when Metrolink stops buying these properties, regardless of what the circumstance, that those who are concerned about this pledge are going to get more concerned? Sure. But... You know, I, I mean, anything that happens, any sort of development, I, I don't think it's a bad thing. I mean, let's be honest. Council will be um, making that decision. And you know where I stand on the LRT. I don't think it's the right decision for the city. And I can tell you, I think that the majority of Hamiltonians don't want it. That's, uh, whether that's true or not, we'll find out in uh, on October 23rd. Um, and, and if it is the case that the LRT is what Hamiltonians want, then... Nothing has changed, but if it isn't, then perhaps it isn't a bad, such a bad idea to just uh, hit the pause button while we continue to acquire property. I mean, if the LRT is voted against, if council, the new council chooses to spend that money um, in another fashion, then that property will have to be sold again, so it doesn't hurt to, uh, to just hit the pause button. Uh, but let me just go ahead. state... It is not the that was not the intent of this directive. It is part of a province-wide um, 
program to review all of our expenses. Have you actually made that part of your answering machine on your phone yet that says, <laughs> hi, this is Donna Skelly and the LRT is still a thing? It's it's incredible, but it is, I don't know if you, you talk about it often, but I certainly do, and, and it is raised everywhere I go. Can it be stopped? And I said, it's up to the next council. So you you decide how you want, whether if you want the LRT, you will probably elect somebody that supports the LRT. If you don't want the LRT, you'll probably cast a, a ballot, or you, at least you can, uh, for someone who doesn't want the LRT. It really is up to the next council, what they want to do with that money. You said a couple moments ago, and and reiterated it now, that this is probably going to be the number one election issue in Hamilton. I I haven't come across one that is more likely to take over the narrative and suck up all the oxygen in the room. It could happen between now and then, but probably not. But to that end then, and you've stated your objection many times on council and since you've left, you don't think it's the right idea. Will you then, will you or will your government be endorsing um, candidates, taking any kind of action as far as trying to get people who are against it or for it elected? Absolutely not. No, this is truly uh, an opportunity for residents of the city to have uh, a say, whether they want it or not. And we won't be. We said we won't be. We're not going to wade into it. I've I've stated my opinion, and people know what it is. I'm not supportive of the LRT, but the decision ultimately is with council. And uh, I think people who are, uh, I believe, really believe that this is an opportunity for taxpayers and residents of Hamilton to state whether they want it or not. They have an opportunity, and it will be an opportunity at the ballot box. And, and I do, it is. There's no... There's no wavering on this. It is the election issue. And you have made it clear over and over and over again, your position is that it will be the billion dollars or whatever the actual amount is that will be directed towards Hamilton for a project, whether it's LRT or BRT or something Mm -hmm. else, that that money is there. So it it does lead me to, and maybe you've been asked this question before, Donna, I don't know, but it struck me this morning as I'm thinking about this. If there's all the questions about whether or not this money is real, and if you are saying and your government is saying, no, no, absolutely, this money is real, Hamilton, you will get this money. Why does the province of Ontario not just put a billion dollars in Hamilton's bank account now and say, this is to be used for the projects that, as you've outlined, and to, to do either transit or to do infrastructure, here is the billion, this is our good faith move to show that this is legit. First of all, there isn't a billion dollars to be transferred from one bank account to another. It's going to be a process of borrowing the money. And all of the projects, uh, whether it is LRT, BRT, rapid transit, whatever the uh, next council chooses, still has to be approved. Um, We will approve whatever form, but if there are other projects that are associated with uh, the um, transit initiative, uh, it won't, you know, we're not going to approve social infrastructure. I can, I can tell you that right now. Um, meaning what? It, meaning proje- programs? Social infra- exactly. Okay. We're talking hard infrastructure. And uh, we are also, and the reason we are undertaking this line-by-line audit, realizing quite quickly that a lot of the programs that were announced by the previous Liberal government didn't come with any sort of a funding formula in fact, they weren't even assigned to a department or a program. And so we're, you know, this, this, this big announcement was made and there's no funding for it. So that's the reason for the line-by-line audit. 
there isn't a billion dollars sitting in a bank account, but there is the intent and the promise to borrow that fund, those funds, to uh, cover the cost of BRT, LRT, transit, a transit-related um, um, initiative. Now, again, uh, I'm not going to make you repeat yourself for the 4,000th time, but we've, we've now heard you. We know what you're saying on this. Here's the, here's the other challenge on this thing. We're going to be talking here on the show in just a few minutes about the NAFTA negotiations or whatever we're calling it these days. And we understand that what happens there potentially could have a huge, huge impact on Ontario's economy with tariffs and everything else. We understand that depending on how those negotiations go, Ontario could either be doing very well or could be taking a bit of a hit here. What happens if Ontario ends up on the bad end of the stick because a deal can't be reached and our economy suffers? Does what then happens to that billion dollars? Because I can't believe that everything stays exactly the same. Trust me when I say this, the billion dollars will be the last of uh, the least of our concerns. Scott, one in five jobs in this province. Uh, depends on Canada-U.S. trade. So if this deal falls apart, it will be absolutely devastating to this province. I don't think, I'm not sure if people recognize the uh, what's at stake in these negotiations. Every day, every single day, over $2 billion of trade transfers between Ontario and uh, our southern neighbors. So you know, there is a tremendous amount at stake. Our minister, Jim Wilson, was uh, in Washington recently to argue our case, um, that this is this is something that we have to continue. Uh, our Premier Ford has been calling a number of U.S. governors nonstop um, to talk about, again, uh, the importance of, of reaching some sort of a deal. But for the U.S., a lot is at stake as well. Nine million American jobs actually depend on Canada-U.S. trade and investment. So this isn't, you know, forget about LRT. We're going to be talking about massive, 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 massive unemployment in Ontario if we don't uh, sign some sort of a deal, reach some sort of a deal. Now, I was just before this interview waiting to see if Christia Freeland was going to be speaking to tell us, um, bring us an update. I understand talks are progressing. Let's just hope a deal is reached. 82% of our trade, of, of, of our trade, goes to the U.S. Our next um, neighbor, I think, is the U.K. at 6%. So there's a lot at stake, really, a, a tremendous amount. We must get a deal. What is, uh, are there discussions going on in your government right now as preparation in case they don't? Because if it yeah. happens, if it happens, great, fantastic. We move along and hopefully things are advancing and the economy is roaring along and everything's great. But you know, there is a chance. What kind of discussions are going on right now to be there to, to take some action in case things go sour? Well, the U.S. governors that uh, the Premier has been dealing with recognize the importance of this as well. We will continue that type of a relationship. We're forging ahead. Um, Ontario has a very, very good relationship with many of the uh, its, its trading partners south of the border. Our number one uh, trading state is Michigan. And I think California follows, and uh, I think it's Michigan, California, New York, Ohio, and then and the list um, goes on. But we have been meeting with these, phoning, talking to stakeholders. I will continue to do that. I'm doing a next week, actually beginning a, um, a tour across uh, the province just to talk to some of the stakeholders across Ontario, and then if need be, 
uh, heading south. But I think we're going to continue that regardless of the outcome of these talks because uh, of the importance of this relationship. And, and let's pray that this deal is, is settled in the next uh, couple of days. But we need, to, um, we need to ensure that this doesn't happen again because it is, it is crucial to this economy. I mean, it really, really is. There's so much at stake. We have to have a deal. Can you... Uh you kind of have, but in in some sort of context, it's one in five jobs, as you one say. One in five jobs. The, one in five. So, what impact does that have? Every single. Well, think about it. Thousands and thousands. Nine million jobs in the U.S. Hundreds of thousands of jobs in Canada, in Ontario, I should say. We have to. We have to reach some sort of a deal. It's. It's just. There's just far too much at stake. If the tariffs go on the auto industry, we we will see a collapse of our auto industry. And we just can't afford it. And it's not just the the big um, 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 uh, auto producers, auto manufacturers. It's the other jobs that are related to the auto industry. So it it will have a profound impact in southern Ontario and right across the province. We have to have a deal. Because so much, I mean, so much of what the premier has said, uh, generally or specifically, that he wants to do as far as getting economy or getting Ontario going, is reliant on a strong economy. If this thing falls apart, I, I, it would probably be any government. But you're going to be seriously handcuffed in what you're able to do. True, but I can tell you, I can assure you that the premier won't just let it fall apart. He will. He is doing everything possible right now. He's working uh, beside the our federal counterparts. But he will also head to, you know, he'll head south of the border as well to ensure whatever he can do, he will do. As I said, there's just far too much at stake. This is this is a very crucial moment. We should all be following these talks um, closely. It sounds from the reports that, that they are making progress. Let's hope they are. Well, and just to bring it around full circle, uh, and again, I saw, I asked you this already, but look, if, if things go completely sour, you say the billion dollars for LRT will be the least of our concerns, and I think you're, I think you're correct about that. If one of five, one in five jobs is affected by this, that I mean, I think many people are going to be looking, saying, if this thing doesn't happen again, uh, no matter how many times you've repeated yourself, that billion dollars, every dime then is going to be being looked at by the province if uh, an NAFTA deal is not drawn up. I, I couldn't speculate, and I certainly don't want to. If, if NAFTA falls apart and a tariff is placed on our auto industry, we'll be having another conversation. It won't be pretty. It, it is, it, let's just pray that that doesn't happen. I don't even want to <laughs> I don't even want to speculate that that's going to happen because it's such a it would have such a devastating impact on our economy. Um, you know, I'm I'm not going to say that the billion dollars is going to be there or it's not going to be there. I'm, I can just say, as everything stands today, um, we have promised that that money is there for LRT. I don't even want to think about what will happen to the province if the uh, NAFTA deal falls apart. I can assure you, though, everything that can be done will be done, and and the right person is leading the province right now. Believe me, if there's going to be any sort of salvaging this this um, deal, if, if the feds can't do it, you want Premier Doug Ford heading down south because he, he will be able to make more progress than anybody else who would have been leading the province. And I believe that wholeheartedly. Well, that is today's LRT discussion. I'm sure we'll be back talking about it tomorrow and the next day up, right up until <laughs> municipal election. Donna, it's like, the, it's like the Glenn Close character in Fatal Attraction. It just cannot, every time you think it's done, it's gone, it's coming back. It is, and, but, but think about it from a journalist's perspective on a, a slow summer day. Hey, you've always got the LRT. I, I suppose. <laughs> I, su- <laughs> I suppose. 
Listen, Donna, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. That is Donna Skelly, the MPP for Flamborough Glanbrook. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. You heard the story. Shona was just reading there in the news. Uh, we've been talking about it a little bit leading into right now. Back in December, a guy by the name of Christopher Garnier out in Halifax was convicted of strangling a woman to death during what he described in court as a consensual sexual act. However, there's question about whether, in fact, it was a consensual sexual act. Uh, she had her larynx was broken. Her nose was broken. A bunch of other injuries. He then took her body, put it into a dumpster, dragged it down and disposed of it. Anyway, he's convicted of second degree murder. But somehow in a sentencing hearing afterwards, his lawyer explains to the judge that the stress involved that he suffered from killing her, not stress from before, nothing, the stress that he incurred from the act of murdering this woman led to him having post-traumatic stress disorder. And now he should be treated for this disorder because it's a legitimate thing and he's suffering. Well, I think most level-headed, clear-headed people would say, come on, come on. You can't, you can't murder someone and then say that the killing of that person has led to some sort of mental condition which you should then get government-funded treatment for. However, he is getting that through Veterans Affairs. His father was a soldier, was a serviceman. And because of that and because of family coverage, the federal government is paying for this a convicted murderer's PTSD treatments. I want to bring in Michael Blaze, who is the president and founder of the Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Michael, thanks for doing this today. Good morning. Uh, is it me or is this entirely crazy? Oh, I don't think it's you or me or a vast majority of this country who is appalled at what is transpiring now, uh, particularly those who have been supporting veterans during their fight since the Afghanistan war to, to yes, to get appropriate mental health care, not only for the veterans, but their spouses and their children. And to me, this seems like abuse of uh, power in the sense that, uh, for some reason, this man was actually granted support by Veterans Affairs Canada. And yes, a slap in the face to so many, so many veterans who are still waiting in line month after month to have their sacrifice acknowledged and finally, God willing, get the treatment that they need. I do want to get to the veterans who are out there waiting for this in just a moment. Um, but I, I just want to sort of fill in some of the gaps on this story first. You, first of all, you cannot, I don't think, Michael, be surprised at the outcry. When people became aware of this, I think you would have expected and ho- probably hoped that this would be the response people would have. Well, absolutely, you know. And, and, and at the beginning, when it first broke, you know, I had to, to check it out, right? Because as someone, as an advocate who have been fighting very hard to get, you know, individual care for children of veterans who have been traumatized by the experience of war and the impact it had on their family. This is profoundly disappointing. I mean, there was no pre-existing issues in the household that was military-related. And and as a consequence, neither is the trauma that he has uh, supposedly incurred after doing horrific things to this police constable's woman. I mean, my God, what, 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 what happened here? You know, and I think uh, myself and a vast majority of Canadians are upset 
because, you know, there are rules there, you know, that these programs were designed for children, not 30-year-old men who have committed murder. And there are age restrictions there, you know. I mean, you have to be going to school, that higher education, to be have your care maintained till till 25. Otherwise, it's cut off at 21 when you're an adult, and it's supposed to be dealing with this on your own issues. So I, I'm very disappointed, you know. I, I get the uh, gobbledygook from the uh, the department. Oh, you know, we don't discriminate whether there's a criminal record or not on veterans. Well, that's all fine and dandy. I understand that. But let's just stick to the rules for a change and stick to the rules when you say that, uh, you know, these cases will be educated in 16 weeks for a veteran. How did it get educated so fast for this guy? Like, it's just mind boggling the contradictions that are present in this case alone. And, you know, to take it up another step, the government uh, this morning, you know, declined the lawsuit to... uh, for the uh, Afghanistan veterans when they were seeking only equality and recognition to the Pension Act. So there are many issues and that this government and Mr. Trudeau personally must be called to account now and before the next election. How, Michael, does any government, whether it's liberal, conservative, NDP, I don't care what it is, how does any government or even any agency of the government not look at this as it's going through the system and see the firestorm coming and say, wait a second, we want to give this one some second thought before we just okay this guy. It blows me away that this guy got approved because they had to see what was going to happen. Well, you would certainly think so. But are they numb there? Are they numb to the criticism that's constantly coming there because they constantly are earning criticism for veterans in need? You know, this is ridiculous. You know, and we have their chief psychiatrist coming out and justifying it. Now, you know, the pressure's on. Minister O'Regan, Minister of the Day, he's uh, going to see how this happened. Well, it was under your watch, Minister of the Day, and you should have sorted it out before it happened. Just like you should be sorting out all the problems that veterans are incurring instead of wandering around and uh, playing, look at me, I'm a politician. This isn't working. This government is failing us in quantum dimensions. This government made significant promises in exchange for veterans' votes and for Canadians' votes during the last election. And this government is woefully inept and failing in critical dimensions. Would you, we're talking with Michael Blaze, who is the president and founder of Canadians Veterans Advocacy, would you look at this any differently, although it would still be a tragic and horrible circumstance, if the guy who has been convicted, who's now receiving the treatment, if he had been a serviceman who had come back from Afghanistan or somewhere else and due to what he saw or experienced, had PTSD and then committed a horrible crime like murder, would it change your view on whether those treatments should still be available to him after his conviction? Oh, listen, this is apples and oranges. We're talking a dependent here, not someone who was on the point, who bore the witness of uh, the horror of war or perhaps peacekeeping and genocide. No, there are two different things. And on that aspect, the uh, psychiatrist was right. We should not be judging the veteran, the veteran on his criminality in a post uh, post. Uh, military world when there is trauma present that he sustained during his service to this nation. Now, you know, aggravated if it was uh, directly uh, attributable to that service, yes, that's a distinct possibility in this world. We see it happen in other nations quite often. So far, we've been very lucky. But 
does that not, you know, um, you know, reinforce the point that we have to provide treatment? That when young men and women come home that have suffered mental trauma, it's our obligation as a nation to respond immediately to them, to make sure that they, they are accorded a psychiatrist, a psychologist, that there's a treatment plan in place, that we improve the quality of their life instead of making them wait a couple of years for a decision. And, you know, when, when those people and myself who are fighting for those people see someone like Grenier slip through the cracks, get expediated service in an environment where he should not even be entitled because he's too old and doesn't fill the criteria, that is very upsetting. Yeah, it, it makes me wonder what you have to do to not get accepted for treatment. If this, if you're allowed to in this case, what have the veterans, and I know the answer, I'm being rhetorical here, but what are the veterans doing that don't get the treatment? I mean, it, it, it seems bizarre that there would be people who would be waiting in line. Yeah, they're suffering, brother. That's what they're doing. Men and women in this country are suffering because Mr. Trudeau and Minister O'Regan are not providing the mental health care that they need. And on mental health, they've again been woefully inept. They promised, made promises, big center of excellence, you know, inpatient facility that we can send these young men and women to when we identify them. But that's not happening now. You know, it's always download to the province. And you know and I know that every province in this nation on mental health is overwhelmed by the civilian population as it is, that there are no specific uh, care or support mechanisms for veterans. And once we get or they get uh, lost in the lost in the numbers, often it results in catastrophic events. And, you know, you, 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 you brought this up earlier when you said, well, what about a guy that commits a crime? Well, what about the guy that committed the murder-suicide? These are happening in our country now because that man was denied care. That man went to a, psych, you know, to a hospital in Nova Scotia, and they saw him, we got no beds. Well, what happened? His mother died. His, his, his wife died. His child died. My regimental brother killed himself, and it all could have been prevented. Had this government got off their thumbs and started walking the walk, understanding that this threat is critical and that we as a nation have to respond to it. Yeah, and my understanding in this, Michael, is that the way the government has perceived this or has played this is that ultimately it comes down to the philosophy that in some kind of... I hate to be over the top, but spiritual way that the families of service men and women have served with them in a sense, and therefore we are going to look after them and they deserve coverage and they deserve these kind of treatments. And look, I, that part on its face, I think is a beautiful thing if we can actually do that for the service men and women that they, their families have lived and died with them while they've been overseas. We want their families to be treated properly. And I, it, you and I may disagree on this. I don't even have necessarily a problem of a 30-year-old getting treatment potentially, I know that's above the age limit, if, again, they had suffered something because their mom or their dad was a service member overseas. I just, this just seems like it is abusing the system in every conceivable way. I know. And, you know, like I say, we've been, I, I serve on these advisory committees. We've been fighting so hard for children. I've seen Believe me, I have seen the impact this war has had on the on the on the spouses, on the children, on the long-lasting impact a mental wound has uh, is inflicting on that family today. And you know, to fight so hard to get a child twenty hours individual care, to get you know to get a spouse twenty, and then to have this guy come out and and and, and raise all these questions about the program. 
that, as you say, most Canadians don't have a problem with, because we understand that the spouse, my God, that's the soldier's rock. She's holding down the fort when we're away. She's just just as heroic as the man on the point, considering the uh, the trauma that she will sustain when her husband's gone for eight months in a combat theater. I mean, you know, they deserve that support, and we as a nation have to provide it. And yes, there are issues, particularly with older veterans who are, you know, going through the system of end of life, where where, where children are dealing with uh, veterans affairs through this process, who, who are terribly upset. Yes, they're over 30. And yes, they should have some help during these periods of crisis. Uh, you know, that's an improvement, not a degradement. But let us pray. Let us pray that, you know, that this, 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 this person does not degrade, degrade, and take away from, from those who are needful. Because, you know, this, the, the programs are in place. Yes, there's a mistake here, but that mistake was made at Veterans Affairs on an individual base and should not affect the, the, the policies and programs we've been fighting so hard to have incorporated for these children and spouses. Look, even if even if Seamus O'Regan, who's the minister here, even if he does overturn this today or tomorrow, he says he's now revisiting this, it seems to me this will only, it'll appear anyway, that this is only being done for politically expedient reasons. There's a firestorm now of controversy and, and people who are up, outraged. And so now we're going to say, oh, well, no, this person doesn't get it anymore. But that, and I'm sure you agree, that doesn't answer how this happened in the first place. Oh, and it demonstrates a grotesque lack of leadership in the first place, you know. It's always a knee-jerk reaction, and it's not only this minister. Minister Hare was the same way, and so were the, so were the um, you know, the conservative ministers. I've been fighting for a long time. It seems that in Ottawa, we always get subpar ministers uh, shifted over to the minister or the Veterans Affairs portfolio. They're not good leaders. You know, they follow General Natinchik around like uh, he's running the department, in my opinion, and as a consequence, you know, we have bureaucrats doing politi- politi- politicians' jobs. And every time those bureaucrats grew up, they tried out a minister to go, oh, I'm sorry, I'm going to revisit this or we're going to do something different. When it should have all been sorted out in the first place, that, that the situation here and in other instances should have never happened in the first place. And the only reason that it's happening in the first place is because there's a severe a deficit in leadership at the Veterans Affairs uh, hierarchy. Yeah. And, and, you know, I mean, from the minister down. The question, the question would exist, if it's cancelled now, the question would still exist how it happened. The other question that I would love to be able to talk to one of the psychiatrists or psychologists or whomever is how it is that they determined that the act of murdering someone would cause you post-traumatic stress disorder. Because that, that, that seems like it has now somehow turned the who's the victim here on its head and now made the person who did the crime into some kind of victim. And I, I, I reject that. I reject that out of hand. Absolutely, especially on Veterans Affairs Canada's responsibility. I mean, yes, the criminal justice system may have an obligation there. You know, I read in one article that it it defines that they must, not may, they must have medical treatment when they're in jail. Well, that's fine. The criminal justice system can pay for it then, not Veterans Affairs Canada, at least not when he's not a veteran. You know, and, 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 and under these extraordinary barbaric conditions, particularly. Michael Blaze, president and founder of the Canadian Veterans Advocacy. Really appreciate the time today. Thank you.
Thanks for calling, brother. Have a great last of the summer. <laughs> Thank you very much. Listen, you can hear in Michael's voice the passion and the anger and the upset about this, and he is not alone. There are people all over the country who are outraged by this. And rightly so, justifiably so. Michael is a guy who has fought for veterans. Imagine that you are someone who is trying to get veterans treatment and they can't get it. There is a lineup. Now, many do, but some of them can't get it. And you find out that someone who committed a murder and now claims that he has suffered post-traumatic stress disorder because of the act of killing is getting that kind of treatment from Veterans Affairs. And here's the thing. I absolutely believe that, that this guy, that Christopher Garnier, I absolutely believe that he was stressed out. He absolutely was stressed out. No one's questioning that. Not, though, because of the murder. I believe he was stressed out because after he did it, the anxiety of waiting to find out if you're going to be caught, and then the anxiety of having to go through a trial, and the anxiety of waiting to see if you're going to spend the rest of your life in prison. Yeah, that's going to be stressful. Of course it is. But to point your anxiety back and say, well, you know, I'm suffering because I killed someone and that's really caused me great grief. Come on, come on. If, if that in fact is what's causing you great grief, you want to know something good, good. Spend your time, spend your years that you're going to spend behind bars feeling that grief and feeling that upset and feeling that sorrow about what you did. Good. I don't get treatment for that. Live with that guilt, live with that grief and deal with it and try and when you come out of jail someday down the road, make yourself a better useful person, but don't try and turn your criminal act, your horrendous criminal act into something that makes you a victim and makes us and veterans want to pay for your treatment. That's outrageous. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Really interesting, controversial for sure, decision in a case in Toronto the other day, a judge has ruled that extreme intoxication can now be used as a defense against sexual assault, or at least in one particular case that was ruled. Essentially, if you're so hammered that you can't reasonably be expected to know what you were doing, so your actions were really out of your control, you might not be responsible for your behavior is my interpretation of what this means. Uh, As I say, to the surprise of no one, this would be a wildly controversial ruling for all kinds of reasons. Joseph Newberger is a criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP. He joins us now. Joseph, thanks for doing this today. Oh, my pleasure. When you hear this, um, what's your first, I mean, controversy, I think probably is the number one word that would come with this. What's your first response when you hear this ruling? Good decision. Uh, you know, uh, Her Honor, who made the ruling, is an extremely bright, well-respected jurist. Um, very sound reasoning. Um, I was a bit perplexed at the decision from Supreme Court of Canada a long time ago. And um, it, it, it acknowledges that sometimes certain individuals, uh, either through a combination of consumption of alcohol and drugs or just alcohol, may achieve a state where cognitively they are incapable of um, appreciating what they're doing, and so they do not have the uh, mental intent to commit an offense. I I have to say to to the audience so everybody understands, this is not simply saying, I'm really drunk, therefore I'm not guilty. That is absolutely not this decision. The intoxication has to impact uh, the individual in such a manner that cognitively 
and, uh, and, and guess physically, they are in a state of non-insane automatism. So that is an extremely uh, high threshold to achieve for an accused, which would require uh, not just a fairly distinct uh, evidence with respect to uh, drinking and consumption of drugs, but toxicology expert, as well as a forensic psychiatrist who would have interviewed and investigated this fairly close in time to when the offense had occurred. And all of that would have to be marshaled at a trial for an individual to try and avail themselves of that defense. Even even with those things that you just outlined, and, and I think some people who probably are already blanching at the concept m- may be slightly relieved that it's not just a question of, well, I was really hammered and therefore I, I'm not subject to responsibility for my behavior. But even by those things, it still sounds like there is some room for interpretation. How do we actually know? No. Where, where is that line again? Yeah, no, there, there's no room for interpretation. This is a very rare defense. Even uh, Her Honor has stated that this is in the rarest of cases. You will not, this is not a floodgates argument. You will not see, you know, uh, hundreds of these defenses going on across the Ontario or Canada. It's just not going to happen. Uh, somebody has to achieve a level of really akin to non-insane automatism. Uh, and it's an extremely difficult uh, in my opinion, my, I have a lot of expertise with sexual assault cases and a lot of expertise with mental health issues. And I can tell you that from a forensic standpoint, it is extremely hard to marshal that evidence and convince a trier of fact, whether it's a judge or a jury, that um, that is the case. So it's in rare, rare circumstances. In, in non-legal terms, non-insane automatism would be what? Well, you're, you're acting like a robot. So you're out of control of your own conduct. You're not acting volitionally. So when somebody's an automaton, they're, they're acting in a manner almost akin sometimes to a sleepwalking. So you may be functioning, you're opening a fridge, you're taking something out, unfortunately, in this case, sexually assaulting somebody, but they are not um, cognitively aware of what they are doing. Until now, and I've, uh, there's always exceptions, but until now, the rule generally has been, as I understand it, that if a guy, and well, for the sake of the argument, even though women can cause sexual assault, but for the sake of the argument, if a guy has voluntarily ingested yeah. drugs or booze, he has, no one has held him down with a gun to his head and poured booze into him. He has voluntarily yeah. ingested this, that he is responsible for his actions regardless of what comes after, correct? That's basically been the pretty close to the line. Yeah, I think that's where the debate will be. The debate will be if you enter into a state, even if it is akin to uh, non-insane automatism, uh, you have done that voluntarily by the consumption of intoxicants, and uh, too bad, so sad, you can't avail yourself of a defense because you've voluntarily done that and put others at risk. That's where the debate will be. That's where I think there will be a lot of focus. Um, you know, on the flip side of that is, unfortunately, uh, there are situations that, you know, if somebody may not have had the intent of putting themselves in that state, even though they are voluntarily consuming alcohol, or may have had a particular reaction to a drug that they did not anticipate, and then comes into that state, what we are looking at is, is it fair constitutionally for an individual to be found guilty simply because they voluntarily took intoxicants, mm. but lacked, lacked the intent to commit the offense? Right, because the, the, the argument that will be made is you can't, excuse one bad action by saying that you did a previous bad action that caused you to do the first bad action. That would be those who would, who would disagree with this. Your point, though, and I just picked it up in, in the last little bit there, there could be something you would take beyond just drinking your brains out. You could have taken a medication that you did not know was going to have the kind of reaction it did that could lead you to this state. 
could be medication, it could be illicit substances, and uh, not anticipating the reaction that it was, and you wind up with even and having some drinks, but you wind up in a state not anticipating that because of a particular physiological, biological reaction to it. And so even though you're responsible for having consumed uh, these uh, intoxicants, you still would lack the uh, mental intent for the offense. Uh, that's where the, uh, the Section 7, the Charter Argument, comes into play. What though, if you were in this state, if you were a non, you were in a state of non-insane automatism, so you don't really have control of yourself, but your actions do sexually assault somebody, yep. where is their justice then if they have been sexually assaulted, even though you are now off the hook because you're not in control? Well, you know. It's a tough one. Yeah, but I, I, you know, we don't look at it that way in, in the criminal justice system. The, the idea is we convict people who have committed the act and also have the mental intent for it. So, um, uh, uh, in a case, in a rare case where somebody might establish this type of defense, uh, there is a lack of mental intent, and so there should be an acquittal because that's the way a, a criminal justice system has to operate. The rule of law must supersede all other issues. Um, a, a a victim in that case, because in a in this type of defense, the actual act itself is not uh, is not in question. So the victim was victimized. Um, they will feel certainly uh, harmed by the system because uh, nobody was convicted. But if we take uh, you know a broader view and a look at it from the perspective of the criminal justice system, we still have to be very careful about convicting individuals beyond a reasonable doubt who have guilty intent. And uh, that doesn't prevent the uh, the complainant or the victim from suing. Um, and they're, you know, for all parties, it, it's never an easy process. And the criminal justice system is not always, uh, you know, the best place to go find uh, justice or find some solace in, in, in a bad situation. It's, it's just tough. Are there other situations where the either non-insane automatism or something along these lines would arise where you could reach a point that you would be so intoxicated? Do we see these in other kind of things beyond sexual assault? Are there other charges where this could be used? Yeah, I, I, you know, non-insane automatism could be used in, in, in many other cases. So you could have it in an assault case, you could have it in a, a murder case, absolutely. But the success of these is, is very rare. Um, and uh, you know, if you go one step further, the Supreme Court of Canada removed the, the ability of somebody to uh, run a psychiatric defense if they voluntarily consumed a drug that caused the psychosis. So um, sometimes people, if they take cocaine or marijuana or any number of things, could develop a mental illness um, and it manifests itself in a psychosis. So they have a particular belief uh, or, or some other psychiatric symptoms, and then they commit an offense. And so in the past, you used to be able to use that as a defense. But unfortunately, uh, the Supreme Court of Canada had said, if you voluntarily consume and put yourself into that state, then you can't use it. So there are avenues for this type of defense. And I think one of the debates now will be about this voluntary consumption of intoxicants. And I think that's what it's going to come down to in the Court of Appeal in the Supreme Court of Canada. You do expect this will be appealed, I would guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. You will have lots of interveners on this case. So, uh, for, for for obvious reasons, uh, yeah, absolutely. Look, it's it's legitimate to have this litigated. That's why we have courts. Uh, we will have a legal debate about it, a social debate about it, 
and the, the, it'll go to the Court of Appeal. They'll have to decide on this, and most likely it, it probably would get appealed to the Supreme Court of Canada after that, but, but we'll have to see. Part of part of what makes this story interesting is, well, there's a lot of reasons that make this story interesting, but one of them is we do have a, um, a situation, and, and you can clarify exactly what the law is, but that a, a woman who is of a certain level of intoxication would be deemed too intoxicated to be able to consent to a sexual act with someone, that, that she could later say, I was not capable of making that decision, correct? That's a capacity argument. So. Right. Um, so what it says is that uh, a female or a male, because we have sure. both who yep. are sexually assaulted, uh, has consumed so much alcohol and or drugs that they no longer had the capacity to consent to sexual uh, conduct. Now, that's also a fairly difficult argument to run because uh, there is a fairly low cognitive threshold for consent to sexual activity. So somebody has to be uh, it's not passed out, but has to be very, very intoxicated uh, so that they are really uh, incapable or robbed of any ability to consent to it. So that is also a very high threshold. The law in this country is that a drunken consent is still consent. So it doesn't mean if somebody is, is drunk and stumbling around and their speech is slurred and they're saying stupid things means that this person can't consent to sexual activity. It's a very, very high threshold. The case law is clear. Yeah, but you're right. Very high at both ends. But I guess what I was getting at was if it's possible that a woman could be too intoxicated to consent to a sexual act that she even, that you couldn't legally expect that they were being a, capaci- a position of capacity to be able to do this, right. then it would only logically follow. I would think that a guy on the other side could be in that same circumstance. Rare. But the yes. logic would be that if you're too drunk on one side, you could be too drunk on the other or too intoxicated one way or another with drugs or alcohol, whatever. Yeah, you, you, you make an excellent point. It, it, absolutely, because a person could be conceivably at a point in time where they just don't know what they're doing because of this level of intoxication, and therefore they wouldn't have the mental intent. You're absolutely right. Where do you... So when we started, you said you thought this was an excellent decision because of the, the logic involved in it. Um, two things. Would this? Would we be hearing more outrage about this right now? Because some people are outraged by it and are saying that this is not right. But would we be hearing more about this if this was not a female judge? I mean, I hate to be political about it, but yes. does that change things? If this had been a male judge, would we be hearing a lot more screaming? Uh, I think so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've had a number of... Uh, look, look we're, we're blessed in this country with a very good judicial system, and we have excellent judges. And uh, in Toronto, there are a number of female judges who have made uh, important decisions in the sexual assault area. Um, and, you know, recently there was that case um, with the, the uh, three or four officers, I think it was three officers yes. who were accused. And so that, that was a female judge as well. So, um, but these judges see their role as, as applying the law appropriately uh, in conjunction with charter principles. Um, and and it's a, it's a good decision. So I think it may be more palatable to some people out there because it's a female judge. But it really shouldn't make a difference whether it's male or female. But I think it you know politically and socially it has some impact that way. You're correct. Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP. Really really appreciate the time today. Thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Take care. The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 CHML.